So I got cut and I decided, okay, well, you know, I, I can't play baseball anymore. I'm going to go and take a karate class. So that's kind of where I got started. Are you looking for a way to drive growth, sales, communication, and retention in your academy? Kovar System's six-month program director course is designed to help members of your team thrive in the important role of program director. With step-by-step -step training, we will cover a wide range of topics, including prospect follow-up, overcoming objection, and securing enrollments. Our program will teach your team members to effectively communicate the values and benefits of martial arts, which can be a game changer in securing more enrollments at your academy. Our next six-month course starts on this date, so don't wait and visit our site, www.kovarsystems.com, to get your team enrolled in the upcoming course. Again, that's www.kovarsystems.com. Enroll now and get ready to see some real results in your business. Welcome to the Satori Lifestyle Satori Masters Podcast, the ultimate resource for ambitious, hardworking school owners that want to get their business and their life to the next level. My name is Dave Kovar. I'm a lifetime martial artist, business owner, speaker, and author. My goal is to empower listeners with the knowledge and the tools they need to break through barriers and really get their business and their life to the next level. Thanks for watching and enjoy. Welcome to the Satori Masters Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Kovar, and I'm really excited about having my good friend, Master John Bussard, to join us today. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to be here. All right, man. Yeah, as well. Thanks for your being on the show. And and uh, I know you and I go way back. I think we met 30 years ago. I, does that sound about right? Ten mid nineties. Yeah, about 30 years ago, ninety four. Yeah, yeah. And we were both like only like eight years old at the time. I think <laughs> close to it anyway. <laughs> or in hindsight, yeah. So hey, man, I, I would so uh, right now, Master Bassard has eight schools in the in the Maryland yes. area. Is that right? And you yeah, have we, have, we have eight that we own and we have one uh, that we license. Okay, perfect. Oh, and and you've had all kinds of iterations. You were up to 14 or 15 pre-COVID. And and uh, uh, and so what I'd like you to do is kind of, first off, give me a quick background. Like like uh, a lot of guys like myself, we were, uh, how do I say this? And I don't want to, basically didn't have any other options. We College wasn't working out for us. So we did martial arts. So you had... I mean, you're a pretty educated guy, uh, uh, but you chose this over other professions. And kind of give give me your background about what got you into this and, and some of the stuff that you learned. Well, I, I mean, I guess from the beginning, what got me into martial arts was uh, the television show Kung Fu. You know, I'm dating myself on that. But, you know, when I was in middle school, that was, you know, that was big. Um, loved uh, Kwai Chang Kane and and everything he could do, you know. Note to audience right now, Master Bassard is letting us all know he's very old if he remembers that, but so am I. So it's all good. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where the idea came from. I just, I just thought, you know, wow, this, you know, he's a skinny guy, doesn't want to cause any trouble from anyone, but he also isn't going to let anyone push him around or push other people around. It just, it got me into trying martial arts, right? You know, I got to just share one scene. I'll never forget this. That really did it for me. Cause that was it too, is that some guy was in a bar and some guy had a knife and he kicked the knife and it stuck in the ceiling. And, went, and I remember thinking that was it. That's what I knew I wanted to do martial arts. Yeah. So, so that kind of, I didn't start training at that time. I was still young. I, you know, I did all the sports, baseball, basketball, okay. football, that kind of stuff growing up. And as I got older, um, it was something I always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, something that's kind of funny. It's, it, I look back on it now, 
when I was in uh, 10th grade in high school, I got cut from my high school baseball team. Okay. And baseball was my first love and I was really good at it, but I was one of those late bloomers. I hadn't grown yet. And my high school coach told me he didn't think I could, I could hit the pitchers. Um, so I got cut and I decided, okay, well, you know, I, I can't play baseball anymore. I'm going to go and take a karate class. So that's kind of where I got started. And I was very, you know, I, I've been lucky pretty much my whole life. I just, I don't know why, uh, you know, I have this golden horseshoe up my butt, for, but for some reason, I, things turn out well for me. And that moment of pain, uh, you know, turned into a great career journey as I, you know, got started in training. My, my teacher's name was Kiwon Kim. Um, he was, you know, a, he was the highest ranking Korean instructor in the United States. Um, in the D.C. area, there was Kiwon Kim, Kim Studio, and there was Junri Institute. So between those two, they sort of, you know, dominated the area. And um, I ended up at Kim Studio and, you know, trained there for 13 years. Mr. Kim was sort of like Mr. Miyagi to me. Okay. He was, okay. you know, very philosophical, mm -hmm. um, you know, taught a lot of great champions, but um, he was a terrible businessman. And when I started working for him, I had graduated from college. I was in my mid-20s, and I, I, I knew I wanted to, to teach martial arts. So I started working for him for $600 a month uh, gross income at the time, um, which was $7,200 a year. That was in the late 80s. And uh, he told me, you know, well, let's just do this for a little while, and eventually I'll pay you more as the school grows. He had two locations. Um, well, the schools never grew. Three or four years later, I was still making $600 a month. I was approaching my 30th birthday, and it just got to the point where I couldn't live like that anymore, and I had to right. leave. Um, you know, we kind of mended fences, and then he passed away in 1993. When he passed away, um, I was actually not doing martial arts at the time. I had uh, went out and got got a job selling insurance, life insurance for Mass Mutual, and I hated the job. But I really learned a lot during the year and a half that I did that. Um, you know, I, I learned how to dress like a professional. I had to put on a suit and tie every day. I learned how to conduct myself in a business setting, um, you know, how to make those uh, difficult phone calls and, and, and those type of things. Because, you know, in cold calling, it's, it's, right. it's not fun. Um, but Every day that went by, I just had this yearning that I wanted to open a martial arts school. So I was recently married, uh, convinced my wife to, you know, give me a chance. Uh, she did. And uh, she basically gave me one year to see if I could make it. Uh, so I found a place. I was extremely, again, very lucky. I found a school that was an Arthur Murray dance school where they had outgrown it. And uh, it was 2,000 square feet. It was a perfect size for a school. It was already built out. It had these polished wooden floors. It had mirrors on the wall. It had an office. And again, I didn't even know how lucky I was until, you know, years later when I actually had to pay for a build out. Right, right. Um, so, I, you know, I was just very fortunate. And, you know, in, in 1994, when I opened that school, that was the same year that the Power Rangers took off. So, you know, I was inundated with phone calls to teach little children and the school where I came from 
we didn't teach little kids, you know, that was just not right. something we did in those days. So I had to develop a program to, to teach the younger kids a new belt system and that type of thing to, uh, you know, so as you know, we want run a very traditional uh, karate slash tongue pseudo uh, type of program uh, because my instructor was Korean. But um, just to tell you a little bit about Mr. Kim, Master Kim learned in in Japan prior to World War II from one of the original Okinawan pioneers, you know, there was Gichin Funakoshi yeah. and some others. One of them's name was Toyama Konkin. Toyama Konkin founded Shudokan Karate. Uh, Grandmaster Kim went, he was Korean, but he went to college in Japan. So he studied under Toyama Konkin and then went back to Korea after World War II. Um, so Toyama Konkin is my martial arts grandfather, which is kind of cool. Yeah, well, what's and, really interesting is that's why Tang Sudo forms look so similar to like uh, 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 like Shotokan forms, right? Because exactly. because yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, same roots. So so that's kind of where it started, and you know, and then uh, as you know, I I one of the things about being local to DC, um, I was friendly with John Kokinos of Educational Funding Company, and uh, through a mutual friend, I had met John. And he knew that I wanted to start a martial arts school and, and he was very kind to help me out, sort of take me under his wing, um, gave me all the uh, Kovar products that were in the EFC <laughs> manuals back then, um, you know, and, and the, you know, the Tom Callis introductory lesson and, right, right. Uh, you know, all of the, all of those trade secrets back in the day. So um, that's how I got my start. And, um, you know, and, and the first school opened in 1994 and, and it's just been, you know, a roller coaster ride ever since. I have a couple observations. First off, when you say I've always been really lucky, I was, but you know, also the fact that, yes, you've been really lucky, but you're a smart guy. You've worked hard. And I kind of, you know, of course, that play, comes into play. But I think what is really important is that your belief that you're lucky. I, in my opinion, that really makes a big difference. You know what I'm saying? It's like, because you just kind of assume things are going to work out. And because of that, even as you go back to when you first opened your, you know, you, you, uh, you had to quit the job because you weren't making enough money and, and you did life insurance with the time seemed like the worst thing possible, but man, it makes you really appreciate what you did. You learned a lot, but the fact that you, 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 you look at it that way means your unconscious is always kind of, looking for the good of what's going on. You know, how can I benefit right. from this? You know, on a kind of a cellular level, which really a lot of people aren't wired that way. So I, I think that helps a lot. Uh, uh, the, the other thing that I, I just wanted to say, I remember the first time, my first memory of you was at uh, probably, I don't know, mid nineties, 95, 96. I don't, I don't remember, but I think you had two or three schools at the time. And mm -hmm. there was a breakout at EFC, uh, like a convention and it, my memory serves me it was actually in in the uh, dc area and uh, i remember sitting down and there was a table of 15 16 guys and and i think i'd maybe seen your picture in the all-star list and, and i remember i just go where would where this guy come from all of a sudden you had three schools and you're doing really well and, and remember having a conversation go man this guy's gonna go places he's a sharp guy so and you certainly have thank you so uh, you're, you're growing, uh, you, at pre COVID, you were up to 14 locations. Correct. And, and I remember I gave you, you and I were at a, a member solution event probably a decade ago or something like that. I don't know if you remember, but you were like flying high and I remember telling you, <laughs> uh, 
you know, you're the number one school owner in the country right now. And you were like, ah, oh, don't tell me that I wanted to, I wanted to strive. I, I I wanted to be the guy that was striving to become the number one person, but you're certainly at the, at, you know, the near or at the top of the pack, as far as people that run a, a successful school. And what I mean by that is of course, profitable, you know, quality martial arts, uh, uh, and just having an amazing reputation in the area. So tell me what you've learned, you know, and I, I know share us a little bit about your experience with Harvard business school and what you've learned since then and, and how you're running your school differently now than maybe you did 10 years ago. Okay. Well, I think, um, well, first Harvard business school was something that, again, I, I just sort of fell into, um, you know, my good friend Tule, um, him and I were both running multi-schools. He's in Virginia, I'm in Maryland. We would get together every couple of months just to have lunch and, and just sort of chat. I'd find out what he was doing. He'd talk about, you know, what I was doing and we'd sort of compare notes. And he had gone up to Harvard Business School and taken a class and he had come back and he was he was trying to get admitted into their, uh, one of their, programs that leads to, uh, it doesn't lead to a master's degree because Har Harvard Business School doesn't do an, uh, you know, a uh, the only way you can get a master's degree is to go and spend two years in a row there, right? You, ha you right. have to go up and, and enroll in their business school and do that. But for executive education, they have several programs that will get you alumni status. And one of those was the program for leadership development. So two had applied a couple of times he, he wanted to introduce Harvard Business School to the martial arts. And so he asked me to go. And initially, you know, I was I was almost 50 or I might have already turned 50 at the time. And I said, too, I'm just too old. You know, I can't I can't go to back to college. And he said he said, no, he's like, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of executives up there are older than you. You know, you, sh you should try it. So I went up there and took a class with him, um, loved it. Um, and and, and I, the thing that I really loved about it was the way that the classes were taught, because I, you know, when I was in school, I wasn't very good in school. Okay. Um, and, it, and it wasn't school itself. It was the way school was taught. Okay. And when we went to Harvard Business School, um, it's the Socratic method of learning. So basically what happens is you read a case, you know, on on any sort of business topic that, that they have, and, and all the cases are written this way. You go back, they ask you lots of questions in your discussion group, you know, different ways to think about this. What would you do if you were in this situation? How do you think so-and-so uh, responded? You know, would you have done it differently? Those kinds of things. And you sort of form an opinion. So then when you get to the classroom, the instructor, the teacher, uh, the professor, they stand down at the bottom. You're sitting in this sort of movie theater-like venue, um, but it's circular. and you know, they ask questions to the group and this discussion starts going back and forth. Um, so there were a lot of times where I went into the class having one viewpoint, but after sitting there and listening to the other people talk about it, my viewpoint might shift completely. So the way that it was conducted, I was able to gather and learn so much. Um, and it was it was much different than, you know, reading a book and taking a test on multiple choice or, it, you know, or that kind of thing. So just the whole method from a business standpoint, uh, you know, we grew organically from 1994 up until uh, really up until the pandemic. 
we were growing. Sometimes we would we would open a new location. Other times we would expand a location. So we might have two thousand square feet at a location and say, you know what, we're, we're wall have two classrooms running. Um, but it seemed like every year we were doing something to grow. Um, so that was that was just a plan. Um, when the pandemic hit, it it really changed the plan. But but before I talk about that, I want to say that prior to that, uh, I was really really struggling. So we were growing and growing and growing. Social media was growing, as you know, and right. I had almost I don't even want to say almost. I think I was addicted to growth. I was addicted to opening new locations. Um, and it wasn't a positive addiction. It was a negative addiction. Um, it was something that I enjoyed doing, but I was doing it at a cost to our business. Um, some of our staff members were put in positions where they weren't ready. Um, you know, they were sort of forced to grow whether they wanted to or not. Um, and it made it made for a culture that wasn't great. It, you know, the people weren't very happy. Um, and it was just me pushing, 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 you know, got to open the next school, got to expand, got to grow that mindset. And it got to the point where mentally I was burned out. Um, I was frustrated. And about six months before the pandemic hit, I had actually taken a sabbatical. I had said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to take a break. Um, and then shortly into my sabbatical, before I was ready to come back, the pandemic hit. I, I want to I, I stop you. I want to stop you for one second. I, I just I don't know if you remember, probably six or seven years ago. And for those of you listening, uh, John and I have been good friends for a long time, and we chat recently. You're better at reaching out than I am, I think. But uh, you know, and but I remember we had a conversation where I said, you know what, I'm just I don't think I'm going to be opening up any more schools. Do you remember this? I I, I think yeah, I'm done. And you wrote this articulate, like four page note to me about how important it was that we keep growing. But so it's interesting how uh, I think I was where you are, you were prior to pandemic. It was like, okay, man, and you think, you know, this is getting pretty heady. So uh, anyway, continue on. Yeah. So, so, you know, and what happened is I built this monster, you know, I've, I've got 14 locations and there was literally a point in time where I, you know, I just stopped and I said, okay, I've got these 14 schools. What the heck am I going to do with them? You know, am I, am I just going to keep running them? Am I going to be able to sell them? What's my exit strategy, which is again, something that they, you know, when I went to Harvard, one of the things they talked about was, was a business life cycle that most businesses are built. They grow and eventually they're either sold or they die and, and they have a life cycle. So you know, what was my end game? What was, what was my strategy? Was I just going to do this until the day I died? Was I, you know, was I going to be able to sell it? Who was going to buy it? Who, you know, how was that going to work? And I realized that I had kind of overcooked things and the pandemic, while it was hard, was actually a mixed blessing for me because, you know, I mean, I didn't enjoy getting sued by several landlords and I didn't enjoy losing 50% of our students and the accompanying revenue that went with them. But it allowed us to negotiate with our landlords. 
Um, and, and one of the things that happens when you're when you're growing multi schools, and, and this this was something I'm, and I know you guys go through this as well. You know, we're in the Washington, D.C. suburbs and within the suburbs, there's lots of towns, um, lots of cities. Some of them have great demographics. Some of them have decent demographics and some of them have poor demographics in terms of being the best place to run a, a martial arts school. So. Right. When you, you know, once you get, when you first start, you kind of almost have to go wherever a landlord will take you, right? But as you start to grow and, and you get a little bigger, you can be selective. So you can, you know, they start to want to recruit you. And, right. and so you start to go to these really great demographic areas that are just home run locations. And then after you kind of go to a few home run locations, you realize, well, there aren't any more home run locations. The rest of these locations just aren't as good. Either they don't have the population or they don't have the annual or the average household income you want or the number of kids or whatever, whatever you're looking for. They just don't have it. So we started opening in cities and in communities that weren't necessarily the best. And of course, we still were doing okay pre-pandemic, but, you know, we had some schools that were extremely profitable, and then we had some that weren't as profitable, and a lot of it had to do with where those schools were. So, you know, when the pandemic hit, we were able to go back and, in essence, look at it and say, okay, these locations that are really good, when we come out the other side of this, we want to keep these, but these that aren't so good, we want to get rid of them. And, with the help of a bankruptcy attorney uh, and a lease liquidator who worked on my behalf, we were able to negotiate our way out of several leases. And we came out the other end. Um, I sold one location to one of my former uh, employees who'd been with me since he was a little kid. And we have eight locations that are doing extremely well. Um, and we've worked on some things to really improve those locations. And so, you know, I, I don't know if this is Kicks Karate 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0, but whatever mm -hmm. version we're on now is a much better version than what we were 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's it's remarkable to see how you continue to evolve and shift and focus. And I know now that your wife, Lana, who's an amazing gal and is kind of the CEO of the company now, has really taken a different perspective on things. And I, was she the one that really pushed you guys to go be more, you know, paperless and uh, 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 cashless, et cetera? Is, is she the one or was that something you both kind of agreed I, upon? Yeah, I, I think, well, Lana definitely played a part in it. Um, she she really, when, when I went through that, that time where mentally I wasn't, you know, I, I just wasn't able to run the schools anymore. She took over the day-to-day -day operations. And what I mean by that is she was speaking with the managers on a daily basis. She was making a lot of the, the decisions that we were doing. And my focus during the pandemic, when I came back was lease negotiations. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the attorney all the time and I'm dealing with the courts and all of those things as, as we're trying to get through, uh, you know, put out some of those fires. Um, but one of the things that I, I've kind of felt this way for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, you, you have to do what you can when you can. And, um, you know, when we started, we ran ads in the newspaper, right? That's that's right, the way right. we advertised. <laughs> um, there wasn't another way. 
Um, but over time, things have changed. And one of the things that really changed, and, and as far as, as what I was looking to do, I, I, I told you this uh, a few weeks ago, I have a video um, and it, it comes back on my Facebook memories once in a while of, you know, about 15 or 20 of our staff members all standing in front of a mirror, each one uh, repeating our introductory lesson, you know, basically giving an introductory lesson to no one. Um, and I'm walking around and I'm checking everybody. I'm looking at their energy level and I'm looking at, uh, you know, what they're saying and making sure that they've, they've got it memorized. And one of the things that really bothered me was how difficult it is for each and every employee, each and every staff member to be good at doing an introductory lesson, you know, and, and whether it's your, your phone script or your introductory lesson or your enrollment conference, some people are comfortable asking people to pay. I've had many people through the years that weren't comfortable with what we charged and they had a hard time asking people to pay that. Um, so what I was always looking for is what can we do to make the staff member's job easier? Okay. So if, if, if it's, you know, we can find a way that they no longer have to teach an introductory lesson or they no longer have to answer the phone, you know, what is it that we can automate? You know, and, and I guess the the old school thought on this would be, you know, instead of having 20 people learn the phone script, what if you had an 800 number where people could call for information and you had maybe two people that worked at that, you know, that only answered phones and they set the appointments for your entire company throughout for all your locations um, because some people are really good at it and they have that great personality that people just feel good when they talk to them and other people don't. Other people come across the phone. They may be friendly in person, but when they're on the phone, they just don't right. have that, right. that presence, that personality. Um, so what we started to do was we started to look at the systems we created to run our schools and we tried to automate them to minimize as much as we could, the responsibilities of our employees. So if, if there was something, if we looked at, you know, here are all, here are the 10 things that the employee has to do each day. Well, if we can take one or two or three of those things away from them and automate it, that makes their job easier. Right. It also makes them happier because a lot of them don't want to do it. So we tried to make, make those things easier and, you know, and, and we can talk about the details of that as much as you want, but uh, that that's basically what we've done. So you've really streamlined stuff. I know that uh, contrary to a lot of people in the industry, uh, you know, you don't put a lot of emphasis on retail and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's kind of like, Hey man, uh, you know, how much do you, how much, uh, time do you want your people spelling, selling a $2 mouthpiece, right. And how distracting that could be for other things as far as inventory. And, and so how do you, let's just take the retail piece now. So how, uh, have you restructured that? So where it's not an important part of your business, but it's allowed you to be more successful. Yeah. So, so what we did is we said, okay, the only two things we're going to stock at the school are uniforms and t-shirts. Um, and other than that, any sparring gear or, you know, other items that they, that, that the student may want, we use century direct um, we have the person, you know, it, it's on our website. So the person can go right to our website. 
They can click their size, click whatever they want. Sentry drop ships it directly to them. It never enters our school. We don't have to handle anything. Our staff doesn't have to go in the office and spend 10 minutes, you know, on, on an order. Um, they order everything directly. Now, we make less, a, a lower percent when we do that. But what it did was it it it, it does a couple things. We, we make less money per item, but now we're not stocking anything. And the square footage of my storage pace cost me just as much as the square footage for my mat space when I'm teaching. So I want to utilize, and, and again, this was one of the things that I sort of looked at, you know, if, if I have a 3,500 square foot school and it's $40 a foot, that's a lot more money per month than if I have a 2,000 square foot school at $35 per foot. Yep. So we wanted to, you know, that was kind of where it started is, is let's maximize the space within the school. That's our, you know, one of our biggest expenses is rent. So I don't want to waste a lot of space uh, for, for seating areas or, or fancy fountains or, you know, even dressing rooms, you know, we've gotten to the point where we said, Hey, that's, you know, that's not a necessary thing. Let's do it just like baseball or basketball. When they yep. come, they're ready to play. Um, so the kids, the students wear their uniforms. They, you know, they, they come ready to participate. Um, and, and we sort of, you know, we're able to shrink down the size of the space that we were looking for, uh, whenever we were renting a space. So, um, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then we, we've done everything else, you know, with retail, that was again, get rid of the, you know, the school store, so to speak, get rid of that, make them order it online. Okay. We're not going to make as much money, but we're also not going to lose anything. There's, there's nothing that gets ruined. There's no theft because there's nothing to steal. Right. Um, but it's, it's very simple and it gets shipped directly to them. We still get paid and, you know, our instructors don't have to sort through boxes. They don't have yep. to hang anything. They don't have to do any of that. Um, and really the way that we, and, and here's the other thing, back when we used to do retail, retail was less than 3% of our total income, less right. than 3%. So, so I just, I looked at that and I said, I don't want our staff members to, to spend their time on that. It doesn't generate them. What generates the revenue is the math. Yeah, and then also you're spending time away from serving students when you're dealing with retail. You know, like you could be having an right. important discussion with a parent about their child's progress, but instead you're trying to size somebody else's uh, new foot pads, right? So no, I get it, man. You know, and all of a sudden you can get by uh, with, with less people because you don't have to man that front desk to the same level you did before. Well, I mean, think about this, and this is this is where I think people step over dollars to pick up nickels. If if you're running a school and, and you're charging them, you know, let's just do some easy math. If it's $200 a month and they come eight times, every time they walk through your school, they paid you $25 for that class. So that's, you know, yes, you have to pay your instructor, but if they're teaching 10 kids in that class, that 25 times 10, that's $250 that you made for that class. And then, and, you know, if you paid your instructor 25, now, you know, you subtract that. The only thing you have left is rent. When, when you're dealing with retail, 
retail, you know, if you sell something for $20, it costs you 10. So you really only made 10 anyway. Um, and then when you subtract what got lost, what got broken, what got ruined, you're not making 10 anyway. So it just didn't make a lot of sense. And, and so that's kind of the way that we've looked at every aspect of our business from, you know, we stopped teaching introductory lessons, um, which was, you know, like you, I came from three lessons for 1995 back in the day. And um, then we set, you know, way back then we looked at it and said, we don't really need three lessons. The person's ready to enroll after the first lesson um, if we teach a really high quality lesson. Um, and then actually, this is one of the things that came out of the pandemic. During the pandemic, once we were able to reopen, we looked at it and we were only allowed to have a certain number of people per square foot in the building. So instead, you know, sort of out of necessity, we said, okay, instead of teaching introductory lessons, we're just going to invite people to come and take a group class. Right. So, um, you know, now the instructor would ask them to come a couple minutes early and they would chat with them a little bit, but they would come in and take a beginner class. And through that process, um, we eliminated the introductory lesson and the students, you know, would enroll anyway. Um, yeah. So it, it's, you know, it's there's so many. I, what, I can't even mention all the things yeah. we've changed. Well, what, but what a thing! What you've done such a good job of uh, that. Always, I'm always impressed with your operation. What you're doing is that you're you're never. You know, you've done a great job of not cutting the ends off the ham, so to speak. And those of you guys that don't know the story, I won't go into it. The bottom line is you're always questioning what you're doing and how you can do it better. And I know it's it's hard to do, especially when you've been in business as long as you have, you know, because it's kind of like there's the, it's it's hard to come at that voice in your head that says, well, we've always done it like this, right? But that right. can be a really uh, costly uh, mindset. And I know that I see it in our organization. We, you know, especially, and you know, because we both have similar size organizations, it's, it's sometimes hard to turn to shift the momentum of a big location because you got a lot of moving parts and and uh but and there's there tends to be a a certain well this is how we've always done it why would we change it and and you've done such a good job of always questioning is this the best way to do this and is there a better way and if so let's test it so okay how so has have you done much okay you've had do you do much testing or do you roll something out at all the locations or do you try it at one location to see how it works what's your thought process on, on developing a new system let's just say somebody wants to try something differently uh look at their business model differently what would you recommend to them yeah if they're if they're dealing with multi schools the simplest way to do anything is to test it at one of your locations to you know see if it works um work out all the kinks make sure that it's functioning correctly before you put it into three or four or five locations um the other thing is it gives you the proof once you know some people are very reluctant to change so if you try it at one location the best thing that you can have happen is the person who's running that location talk to the other people. So it's not coming from me or from Lana, right, right. you know, and they say, Oh yeah, this is great. We, you know, we're not teaching introductory lessons anymore, or, you know, everybody's enrolling on the app now and it's so easy. Um, and then the other guys go, Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait till they let me do it. Um, so from that aspect, it just makes the most sense. And of course, if you try something and it doesn't work, you haven't done it everywhere. So that that's definitely something I would recommend. Very cool. All right, man. Well, 
I appreciate your time and your friendship. Any, any, what would you say to some guy that's out there that's struggling, you know, trying to, trying to keep the, you know, pay the rent and trying to keep the lights on and kind of having a hard time and finding the way, finding their way. What, what were some, what were some basic things you'd tell them to do? I think most importantly would be to focus on their classes. Okay. Um, because if you're struggling, I mean, again, depends on your location, right? I mean, if you have to look at, you have to look at so many variables, um, where am I teaching? You know, I, I know when I started out and had my very first classes, I was teaching in a, uh, boys and girls club. So the, you know, the space wasn't always clean. It wasn't as nice, but, but if, if you're in a commercial school, um, you know, you want to make sure that your school is clean and presentable. Um, you always want to be, you know, very friendly with everyone that you meet and interact with. And kind of the key is that if you teach good classes and you treat people well, number one, they'll come back and take more classes. And number two, they're going to tell you that they're friends about it. And that's the best way to grow. So that's what I would tell them to do and, and focus on that and, and just, you know, make forget about the, you know, if you see the ads out there that, you know, grow your enrollment by a hundred people in three months, that's nonsense. You know, don't pay attention to that. Just focus on, you know, grow by one or two a week and just consistently do the things that are going to improve your school. You know, it's amazing to me. Great advice. It's amazing to me how many people are looking for the next shiny objects, you know, right? They, they, you know, the sexy thing is going to give them a bunch of students. And, and, you know, you've heard me talk about this before, but you just kind of summed up really the five mindsets that I always talk about. Number one, we're the friendliest place in town. We're the cleanest place in town. We only teach great classes, never just good classes. We're excellent student parent communication. And every day we look for opportunities to re to enroll new members. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's a simple formula, but at the end of the day, it works really well. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. can just stick to that, man, I tell you, uh, uh, and then, uh, sometimes I also see where people, they work really hard for three or four weeks. They don't get the results and they kind of shut down for a while. And it's this never ending cycle. And it's kind of like, you got to show up consistently over time and, 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 uh, uh, especially on the days you don't feel like it. And then inevitably, uh, you know, you, you don't get as much done maybe in a few weeks as you'd like, but over the course of the year, you look back and you've made great progress. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, master Bassard, I so appreciate your time and your friendship and thanks for being on the, on, on the call with me on the show with me and, and, uh, uh, you have an incredibly great, uh, holiday. Thank you, sir. Same to you. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. Are you a martial arts instructor looking to improve your teaching skills and build a strong team of future instructors? Well, look no further than the Satori Alliance, an international association of martial arts instructors. Our mission is to positively impact the global martial arts community by establishing a shared level of martial arts instruction, professionalism, and continuous learning. With our instructor certification program, you'll gain the confidence, communication skills, and classroom management techniques to run a professional and well-run martial arts floor of any age group. We invite you to schedule a free consultation with one of our program directors who can evaluate your instructor team's size, schedule, and training content. We'll outline the Satori Alliance master steps that have helped build and maintain strong teams of instructors. To learn more about the Satori Alliance and schedule your free consultation, please visit our website at www.thesatoriallianceco podcast. That's S-A-T 
O-R-I-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.com slash podcast. Join our community of passionate martial arts instructors today. Thank you for tuning in today to our podcast. I hope you found it valuable and inspirational. To stay connected, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. And we really, uh, sincerely, I would appreciate some feedback. Your feedback helps us to create high-quality content that will help others in the future. If you'd like to follow me, you can go to Dave Kovar on Facebook or Hanchi Dave Kovar on Instagram. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you on next episode.